0: Hey, business owners, ever wondered what happens when you take a payment? Well, there's a whole world of transactions powered by Elevon. Whether it's through currency converting, security asserting, business supporting, real-time reporting, e-com providing, or expert advising, Elevon supports all payments for your business. To find out more, visit elevon.ie. Elevon, your world of payments. Elevon Financial Services, DAC, trading as Elevon Merchant Services, is regulated by the Central Bank of Ireland. The Big Tech Show brought to you by Elevon. Elevon makes payment-taking simple, freeing you up to focus on your business. You take on the world, they'll take care of the payments. See elevon.ie for more. This is an Irish independent podcast.
1: It's a huge amount of money. It's a bit like finding oil or gas somewhere underneath the IFSC, really
0: this might be a a once-in-a-generation chance.
1: What I would argue is that before you have a conversation about what you should do with the money, you've got to decide what the rules of the game and the parameters are. Ireland's population is growing. We need to actually start to plan on the basis that we're going to be a society, you know, of 8 or 10 million people, not just sort of 3. We're at 5.1, but we sometimes still think our population is about 3 or 3.5. Hello and you're welcome to The
0: Big Tech Show in association with Square, with me, Adrian Weckler. Square helps you look after your business needs from payments to menu management and online ordering. Visit square.com for more. Now, Ireland could have 25 billion euro or more in cash, surplus cash, by the end of this year, thanks largely to tech fines, back tax payments and the normal budget uh, surplus. And that could rise sharply over the next few years as well. Whatever way you look at it, an awful lot of money is landing in Ireland through tech companies operating here, whether it's fines or or back tax or 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 other means. Is this the moment for us to think big? Might we be looking at a once in a century windfall or might we just Blow it all on a monorail. Well, I'm joined to think about ways of spending the cash today by Richard Kern, uh, Irish and Sunny Independent columnist, of course, and the host of Ortiz, The Business Show. Richard, I'm actually going to get to the idea of a monorail in a bit, but this is a lot of money, isn't it?
1: It's enormous. I mean, we couldn't have imagined a few years ago, and I say like as recently as 2014 or 2015, that we could possibly be in this position. If you look at the figures, the surplus for last year, this year, and what's expected for next year, Will come to about thirty-four billion over three years. They're even talking. The Department of Finance is talking about the possibility of having somewhere around sixty billion of surpluses in the years ahead. Now, if they were to just invest all of that in a big sovereign fund, that fund could, you know, with reasonable investment performance, turn into a hundred billion euro fund. You know, in in by twenty fifty or even before that. So it's a huge amount of money it's a bit like finding oil or gas somewhere underneath the IFSC really but that's before potential
0: additions such as maybe a favorable or an unfavorable depending on your position ruling on the apple back tax case for example that's there's another 13 or 14 billion potentially there as well
1: yeah there is and like that's that's a huge sum and you know the government would take the view that they hope they don't win They don't lose that Mm. case and get the money because they say they don't want it. But that's yeah, I mean that's that's not including that. So if that were to actually happen over a three-year period, last year, this year, and next year, plus the thirteen billion, plus the other fines that they're collecting, you know, you've got Meta as well. You're you're probably looking at fifty billion, something like that. Okay, it's
0: kind of mind-boggling, and we're not used to being in this position. So, but we had this idea. Well, look. Ireland is not a country that is used to thinking big in, in terms of projects. We're used to having a mindset of struggling or, or thinking that we're, we're poor or we're, we're just trying to get by day to day. This might be a once in a generation chance. Um, what are the kinds of things that we might think about uh, if we were to think big with this kind of generational windfall?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I'm always of the view, Adrian, that we're, we're very good survivors, but we're not great thrivers. That, in other words, the decisions we need to make, and it's part of our DNA and our history and our culture, that the decisions we need to make to survive, we've been doing that for so long. But then when things are going well, the decisions you need to make in order to really thrive, we tend to fall down. But if you look at the kinds of things that, you know, actually people would talk about, it's so tempting. To say, you know, we're going to give free shopping vouchers to everybody. And Mm. already, you know, the government is talking about a thousand euro tax break for middle earners. But in theory, in terms of what's affordable in the short term, that's that's the tip of the iceberg. What I would argue is that before you have a conversation about what you should do with the money, you've got to decide what the rules of the game and the parameters are. And I think it should be spent on something that will deliver long term for Irish society as opposed to necessarily people's pockets right now today. And clearly there are people who could do with it today, and you can target them, but not necessarily everybody. And secondly, we cannot blow it away on things that are going to recurringly cost money every year for good, because you essentially whittle it away, and there's the potential to do that. But the kinds of things I mean, that, that I, I would find interesting would be around infrastructure we should we Mm. should spend on infrastructure it's tempting to the monorail is tempting (laughs) i've been on a monorail in tokyo uh, and it was amazing. I don't know what it would cost here.
0: Well, I was going to leave the monorail for later in the pod, but you you mentioned it, so I'm I'm going to go into to to the monorail. So we do have monorails in parts of the world. You mentioned Japan. We have them in the States, China, South Korea, Germany, for example. Uh, there's one there as well. They typically are used for airports and uh, theme parks, and in some uh, urban situations. But the big advantage to a monorail seems to be that they're slightly cheaper to build than, for example, light rail, roughly 100 million, 120 million per kilometer. So if you were to build one to the airport, for example, it's 10 kilometers, you'd be coming in at less than uh, a billion euro. And the other advantage to a monorail is that they're slightly easier to build in areas which are trickier from a rights of of way or planning perspective, which, as we all know, uh, Irish cities can be notorious for. Um, Is it is it silly to think of a monorail
1: i don't think it's silly if if you build it you're not too ambitious as to how much monorail you're going to build and you build it in a population area that needs the transport link by all means have a look at it on a small scale and out to the airport that may well be a small scale Mm. the problem i think is if you look at planning Mm. how would you ever get it across the planning line how how long would that take and if you take the the, the the census figures that were were out you know this week uh, an early read of the census figures Ireland's population is growing we need to actually start to plan on the basis that mm. we're going to be a society you know of eight or 10 million people not just sort of three we're at 5.1 but we sometimes still think our population is about three mm. or three and a half and if you think that way these things begin to Difficult choices have to be made, you know, around planning and say we want a city that doesn't have a big monorail going past somebody's house, mm-hmm. but we also want a city that people can get around and that can be economically beneficial and people will have jobs in the future.
0: So that usually leads on to other uh, options such as a metro. Obviously, the metro has been bandied about for Dublin for well over a decade. It now seems that there is some progress uh, being made on that. We're talking about a one line from Dublin dublin to the airport and possibly an extension out the south side that is much more expensive they're talking about a budget of about 9.5 uh, billion for that but the advantage to that of course is that it's underground so you don't have the, uh, that visual element those objections that you might get for example with uh, a monorail should we be plowing ahead with a metro
1: Well, I think if you go with the monorail out to the airport (laughs) versus the metro out to the airport, you know, the numbers in the future are going to be whatever the numbers in the future are. And if one of them is, you know, costing nine times more than the Mm -hmm. other, like I I, I would question even planning for the future, whether that metro out to the airport is really, really worth the money. Uh, You wouldn't have the same planning difficulties, but you will have a lot of the disruption. But it should certainly be looked at and it's been looked at for years and the bill keeps going up. And I'm not totally convinced that it's necessarily the way to go, you know. But when you talk about rail in Ireland, everybody talks about if we have all this money, we should build a whole rail network across the west of Ireland. Mm. And we don't have a huge population there. And if you actually had the money and you built it, the question is how many people are there to use it every day? Mm. Now, the rural Ireland argument would be if you build it, they will come. So in other words, the population would grow around the likes of a rail network. I'm not totally convinced about that. You know, I drove down recently the fantastic motorway down the west that you take from, uh, from Chewham straight mm. on down to Limerick. And at about 7 o'clock in the evening, you know, last week, it was empty. Like, I mean empty Mm. uh so there's a kind of a question about that but we need better rail transport why not invest in rail transport in the dublin area in the southeast in the wexford area where we already have rail networks Mm. and try to make them more capacity why not look at limerick why not look at cork throw a lot of money into those urban areas to get a better rail system up and running i think that'd be a wiser way of spending the money
0: yeah or you could take uh Cities like Galway, for example, which does have chronic uh, traffic congestion. There's already been a suggestion of a Galway light rail network. Eamon Ryan, I think, is favorable at at looking at that. But whether it's a monorail or a light rail or or something like that, even if they didn't connect with Limerick or or Cork or um, other centers or smaller towns, even if you had something like the Lewis in other cities in Ireland, that could create... Um, A more attractive and a more natural way of of getting around uh, those cities which
1: aren't rural but they're outside Dublin. Yeah I think that stuff like that I think is probably more realistic you know Mm. again the light rail in Galway they've had such difficulty building a ring road there's been very poor transport public transport within Galway for a long time so everybody became addicted to their cars and unravelling that you know some kind of a light rail system would be one way of doing it Again, if they could get the planning done, I think it's a good Mm. idea, you know?
0: Of course, radical radical suggestions include making public transport free or or absolutely slashing the cost of it, uh, which would mean, of course, you'd have to increase the stock. Is that a foolish idea? Does that come into your definition of heavy recurring
1: costs? It would be a heavy recurring cost, definitely. And some countries have, you know, during COVID and post-COVID, they went for free public transport. What we could do is if we want to get people out of cars and we want to spend a lot of money on the rail network, we could reduce the costs, mm. reduce the price to consumers to encourage them to do that. And you could do it for a set period of time. We're basically saying we're going to build a big rail network and it's going to be free for everybody. Mm. I think we could be setting ourselves up for problems further down the road with something like that. It's kind of just, it's just going too far with the, with the money yeah. because... 20, 30 years from now, you know, it's still maybe racking up a lot of costs and a lot of losses.
0: One thing that's very popular at the moment, I've written about this quite a lot, is solar power, partially because energy bills are going up, uh, but also because people like the idea of having more control over how they power their own homes. Would the idea of more subsidies for solar, even, for example, some big bang idea of free solar panels, to every house, to every air code. um, Would would that be a good idea? Might cost maybe six to 10 billion euro.
1: It would be a big bang idea and it would definitely make a hell of an impact. The question I would have over, and I do think it's, we should definitely do this. We should definitely throw more money at solar, whether it's a free solar panels on the roof of everybody's house. Because if you can afford to buy a house for a million euro or two Mm. million euro, you can probably afford to put up some solar panels and you really should. But isn't uh, that a classic it-
0: trap, though, Richard? I, I, I'm sorry to take you up on that. And I know exactly where you're going that you don't want to benefit people who could well afford things themselves. But in considering the idea of a big bang idea for the country, isn't that just something you have to swallow that millionaires will also benefit from it?
1: Yeah. I mean, and the numbers involved of millionaires or whatever isn't that high. Mm. So therefore, you could say, yeah, we'll have to swallow that for our big. Our big bang impact and it would make an impact there's no doubt a problem has to do with the biggest problem in the country at the moment isn't money right now mm. it's capacity it's people it's the ability to get things done everything yeah. is just sort of bursting at the seams in the big population area so if we decided to do that we could say we're going to do it over a 15 year period mm. uh because it would take at least that long because we don't have the people with the resources but if you talk about energy i think we should definitely spend a lot more money on incentives for people to get solar power into their homes. Mm. We should spend money if it's required to get the skill set into the country. And that might even mean tax breaks for people who would come here who have the skills to be able to deliver on that. We, we have the money to do that as well. And that's a way of fast tracking it. Mm. But on renewable energy, offshore is such a huge opportunity. And there are private sector interests want to spend a load of money doing it. We only have one port on the island of Ireland that's capable of assembling these massive offshore turbines. Hmm. And the real jobs for the future are in manufacturing that equipment, not only having them and importing them and assembling them here, but actually making them. Hmm. That is going to be an enormous industry in the future. We think we're going to be big players in providing the electricity. But if you really want to create a huge amount of wealth, energy and jobs in the future making the stuff here is something that we definitely should consider. And that would require bringing in the expertise, huge amount of state investment in it to make it happen. But in the long run, that could be a real win-win. Mm, yeah, that's an interesting
0: uh, way of looking at it. Um, here's a an idea that has been going around recently, and the government has, has been talking about it a little bit. The idea of paying farmers to reforest their land. Now, there have been incentives, small-scale incentives on this recently. But try this on for size. So I I looked at the sums. There are 21 million acres in Ireland altogether. That's the size of the whole country, okay? About a little over half of that is farmland, 12.1 million acres. Now, the cost of of agriculture land varies from 5,000 to 10,000 euro per acre. If you were to take, say, 1 million, Of those 12 million farm acres, farming acres, Um, that would cost you something in the region of 5 billion to 10 billion. I'm talking about the state buying those acres and then reforesting them. Is that is that a mad green idea? I like that idea.
1: I think it's a great idea. Uh, And I think if you look at it, who would suffer in that scenario? The farming and food industry would say, oh, hang on a minute, we're going to lose a lot of that productive land that we're generating food and selling all around the world. But we already export three, four times uh, the amount of beef that we actually require to eat ourselves. Our dairy industry is huge. So, Mm. yes, it does create jobs and it does create wealth. But if you would actually do a trade-off on our food expansion plans and the future of that industry and how many jobs it will create in Ireland versus the overall social, environmental, sustainable benefit of doing something like a mass reforestation project, I I, I think they would stack up pretty well mm-hmm. because you're not talking about decimating our food industry. You're not talking about ending farming in Ireland. You are talking about redirecting part of that activity and the state being willing to stump up and pay some of the cost to do that. I, I, I think it's a really, really great idea. We may end up having to do it, because we may not meet our carbon targets in the future if we don't do something more radical.
0: Yeah, and uh, it would also mean that we might be able to, for example, uh, sustain better habitats for wildlife. I mean, there's talk of reintroduction of lynx, for example. I know that Eamon Ryan got into trouble a couple of years ago for suggesting that we would reintroduce wolves uh, into uh, Ireland. But surely we, in 2023 we're a little bit removed now from De Valera's dream and I'm sure I'll get into trouble with my colleagues in the Irish Independent for saying this but we're a little bit removed from Dev's dream of you know uh, the whole country being this pastoral agricultural idyllic place and that we need forestry I mean I think it's only 2 or 3% or, or less of our country is natural forestry we're the lowest in Europe or one of the lowest in in, in Europe um, and this just might be a way and and. Uh, of doing it and paying farmers to do it, they would be the ones who'd make five to 10 billion off it.
1: Yeah, and I mean, the, the money the money is there. We, there would be a much wider social benefit. And I think as well, if you, if you look at the likes of the, the food industry, you know, it, we have a very good food product in Ireland. Our, our farms, particularly our dairy farms and beef farms, are not as uh, mechanized and industrialized as they are in the United States and other mm. places. But if we just get bigger and bigger, they will end up becoming closer to the model of the United States industrial mechanized farm. Because Mm. the more you get into producing huge amounts, it's very, very difficult to maintain those slightly more traditional ways of doing things. And we need need to avoid that because you'd have to say, well, what is really the benefit of that? Mm. And I think there's huge benefits from the likes of reforestation. I mean, we have always since independence been way behind the rest of Europe in, re- in, in relation to the level of forestation. We have brought it up. We've brought it up with all these uh, seca spruce and pine trees, you know, which were fast growing for commercial purposes, for yeah. timber, not enough native forest. So if you actually added up the amount of native forest that we have in Ireland, it's still incredibly low compared to all the European cultures. Yeah,
0: I I must admit that my head was turned by a book written by a guy called Owen Dalton, who lives in the Bearer Peninsula which I know very well and he basically bought 70 acres of scrubland and he reforested it uh, naturally. He wired the place off so the deer in particular couldn't get in, goats couldn't get in and now it's a thriving Atlantic rainforest with natural oaks. The whole place is uh, teeming with life and he has gotten into my head that when I visit the places of the country I love very well. I'm a regular visited, a visitor to the West. I now look at these barren hills and mountains and what used to be this beautiful, sparse beauty now seems to me to be a wreck, you know, to be vandalism. But that that's a process, I think, that uh, has probably yet to hit the mainstream in Ireland.
1: Yeah, I think that's true. And we're still coming to terms with what kind of forestry we mm-hmm. want. You know, I mean, the question of, County Leitrim having, what is it, close to 20% of the county in pine forests that people can't really use or go into, you know, there's not a lot of light, there's not a lot of pleasure in it. Mm. Uh, You'd have to, I mean, we have to really look at that, you know. Yeah.
0: One thing that often comes up when we're talking about uh, how a country should spend its billions is this idea of the universal basic income. And every year it's trotted out as... uh, uh, something that we might potentially launch a trial in ireland we have actually launched a very limited trial for artists of sort i think we took two thousand artists and we're paying them a basic income of i think 325 euro per week and it's not a universal basic income but the idea is to relieve them of the pressures to go and spend their time doing other stuff so they can focus on their art do you have a view on whether a universal basic income would be a good idea or not
1: I'd I'd love it if I thought it could work, if I thought that it would work and if I thought that the economy could remain strong and there would be lots of jobs, Mm. people paying tax in order to fund it into the future. If the model could be found and it was targeted in the right way, but I'm just not, I'm not convinced. And it it falls very much into the trap of setting ourselves up for a recurring spend. Mm. And we can't really assume that the money will always be there to cover it.
0: Well, isn't the idea, though, that by, say, guaranteeing a minimum income, that first of all, you can neutralize some, not all, but some of the uh, uh, social welfare payments or, or other payments that would have been there instead of a universal basic income? Now, I'm not saying, as some libertarian billionaires do, that... A universal basic income should completely replace social welfare, but it would mitigate it. And then there's also the general idea that a universal basic income would free people who feel out of economic necessity that they have to do low-paying work um, into maybe retraining and doing more productive higher-paying work and
1: it might be good for the economy. Yeah, that's true, but somebody will have to do the low-paying work. It's probably, mm. unless automation can replace all of these low-paying jobs and The direction we're seeing now is that AI might pose a threat to kind of mid-ranking professional jobs in certain categories. Mm. Uh, But I don't know that automation is going to do everything in relation to people working in restaurants and McDonald's and chicken processing factories, all that kind of stuff. Um, It it doesn't necessarily, certainly not yet, it doesn't seem to be going in that direction. So I would have thought it's better to focus the resources on providing whatever financial cushions you can for the lower paid mm. rather than saying nobody is low paid anymore you yeah. know i just, i just i i would sort of i'd love to think a magic formula could be found by which it would work because it would be great but i'm not convinced
0: yeah now you have a, a couple of other more sensible suggestions i think on <laughs> on on how to use our our new minted uh wealth. What, what are they
1: yeah i mean i i i mine are, are Rather than sensible, they're modest, modest proposals, Adrian. Mm-hmm. I think I described them as rather than the, the big ticket item that maybe we can't really afford. The first one is hospital waiting lists. We still have 500,000 people on public uh, hospital waiting yeah. lists above the slauncher Care targets. We have seen the ability of the private healthcare sector to raise its game and when there's money there for consultants and doctors in, in the private sector to, to increase their productivity, they seem more than willing to do it. I think we should throw a load of state money at fixing hospital waiting lists rapidly and quickly by using private sector resources. I think that the private health sector is probably not at full capacity. The public health sector feels like it is. We already have a fund. $240 million a year this year will go on the National Treatment Purchase Fund. And that's, you know, the state paying private sector hospitals, et cetera, and medical care to help reduce waiting lists. Some of it goes into the public. Why not double that? Because the target is to reduce the waiting list by 10% this year. And there's 500,000 on waiting lists above the Slauncher Care target. So why not throw a load more money at that rapidly and quickly and get down the numbers on those waiting lists and actually save lives? Look at the, the money we spent and the lengths we went to to save lives during COVID. Mm. Lives would be lost, and some of these people on waiting lists are because of COVID, mm. uh, and it's 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 a tail end of it. I think we could do a lot more quickly to get rid to to improve the health mm. and save lives by using private sector medicine at a state cost to get through those waiting lists more quickly.
0: And would that be potentially? just a step change upwards in our annual health bill, though? I mean, if we did it one year or two years, would, would there not be pressure to do it for five, 10, 20 years?
1: There would. And then the, the resistance to that pressure would come from within the public health system itself. And they'd say, you're not investing in our hospitals. Mm. You're spending all this money on private sector hospitals." And they're probably, the state will be doing that in order to get faster results. So the real long-term answer is to reform the way we do public health care in Ireland, I get better results for the money we spend, but that's not even on the horizon, really. So in the short term, I think we, we could throw money at this for five years and get through a lot of those waiting lists and actually save lives. You also
0: think we might abolish the leaving cert?
1: I'd love to abolish the leaving cert. I think it's a, it's become a kind of, it, it was designed to be a fair system, and I think it's become a kind of a grave injustice in its own way, and it's becoming more and more redundant because it's all about local learning, essentially. Mm -hmm. So what I would argue is that um, people should be able to go to third level and apply to go to a university or a college to do the course they want to do, not points-based. However, you cull the numbers in the first year of third level. So in other words, if, you know, 5,000 people say they want to study medicine, Mm. then they can get in and they can study medicine for the first year. But, There's like 70% of them are not going to make it after the first year. Mm. What that does is it eliminates the leaving cert as this big national obsession, which we think is kind of fair and equal, but kind of isn't. It also then allows people to pursue in university for one year and see if they actually like something and see if they have the ability to do it, as opposed to being ruled out before they ever. Imagine all the, the doctors we could have had brilliant medical scientists. We could have had in our society, but they didn't get enough points in the leading sir because mm. they were busy going out to discos and, you know, talking to girls and talking to boys or whatever it is. So we would have to re-engineer the third level system in a very, very different way. But I think it would open up. You'd say to yourself, well, everyone would want to do medicine and dentistry. They wouldn't. No. People, they don't want to be a doctor. Yeah. And also they'd know, If they chose a course like that, they run run the risk of failing first year and then losing a year of their education. They'd have to take that into account. So I don't think you would get everybody jumping in to do medicine and dentistry and all these sort of uh, law, etc. You'd get huge numbers, but the third level system would have to be reorganized to manage that. And you call them in first year and everybody gets a shot at what they would like to do. And look, as, as
0: you've said, some of these issues are not necessarily solved with money. They're solved via uh, will and institutional reform. And that's probably a whole different uh, conversation. I know certainly with third level uh, I look at plans that Trinity College said that it had for a, a thing called Trinity East. We covered it on this podcast. I've written about it. That was supposed to be a one billion euro extension uh, in the Docklands, and it was supposed to be a a, a new world leading facility and school for uh, for business for tech. And well, the college has kind of eased off that, and and there wasn't really any. Uh, a huge appetite in government to for funding uh, for that for whatever reasons they had. So it's quite difficult to get uh, the state to to become interested in very ambitious uh, education, particularly third level education programs.
1: Yeah, but even if you take second level, right? And we're talking about technology and everybody's obsessed with with AI and so forth. One of the things that that it will do is it it will diminish. People's need to be able to do rogue learning. The second thing is that I've already seen secondary school kids where they're laughing behind their teachers' back because they've submitted an AI written project and they've got a distinction. And the schools seem to be completely ill equipped. Third level, maybe a little bit more equipped, but second level, they're, they're just not geared up for this at all. And it's happening every day already. One of the things that I think about second level is we can't just reinvent our entire Leaving cert, junior cert and second level education system and retrain every teacher. But we could bring in people more to do short, sharp courses who are not, you know, ASTI or teacher trained union members. Bring them in to do modules of courses into secondary school or even primary school from outside AI. Mm. You know, a lot of our teachers are wonderful teachers. They do a very good job, but, but they're not qualified in. So why not bring have a program that the state will pay for people to come in and do modular short-term courses on things that are seen as really relevant that we can get very fast results from and try to educate secondary school and even primary school kids quickly. Again, I suppose the teaching profession would say, you're eating our lunch, why not train us up in doing that? I just don't think that's practical. I don't think we'd have the time. I think it's already happening and schools are just not geared up for it at all. In another three or five years' time, it's potentially going to be very disruptive to the school education system. So I think it's not, not just about AI, but about, about coding, about software, about mm-hmm. all kinds of stuff, about the media, how to understand the media, critical thinking, how to analyze things. We can get people who know about that stuff to come in and get the state to pay them to come in short term modular courses, not here's a guy who's going to come in and tell you about AI for an hour, Uh, something more substantial.
0: Richard, I think we've solved the uh, country's problems this year and for the next five, ten years. I'm not sure how much money we've spent there, but I think we've probably blown through the majority of your $34 billion or maybe even your $60 billion, uh, over the next few years. So uh, thank you very much for joining us on the podcast. That was uh, Richard Kern, of course, uh, columnist here and presenter of Ortee's uh, The Business. My thanks to Tabitha Monaghan, who produced to... Um, Gav Hennessy, who was on sound, and Conan Doherty, who took care of the video. From me, Adrian Weckler, you've been listening to and watching the Big Tech Show in association with Square, and I hope you'll join us the same time next week. Bye bye.
1: An Irish Independent digital subscription doesn't just get you the news. It gets you the best of Ireland's stories all in one place. Whether it's the best of politics, business, sport, entertainment or lifestyle. Get it all for just €4 a month for 12 months when you first subscribe. Visit independent.ie forward slash subscribe today. Irish Independent. Terms and conditions apply. Cancel anytime.